Welcome to Supex Radio, a weekly talk show devoted to startup and early stage entrepreneurship, venture investing, and small businesses in general. For more information, including our past broadcasts, uh, future episodes, and our radio network affiliates, please visit our website, www.sup-x.org. And I'm proud to say that we're now in the iTunes store. You can simply just look for SUP-X, and our past podcasts are there, and this one will soon be there too. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, at TheSupex. That's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. I'm your host, Bob Fitz, and our guest is uh, Dr. Patty Fletcher, who I'm very glad to have. Patty is a marketer, a strategic advisor, board member, investor, writer, gender equity advocate. I could go on and on and on. Uh, she's a very cool person. We've had her speak at Supex a couple of times, and she's really interesting. And she's joining us today from uh, Boston, where she calls home but uh, doesn't get to sleep too often because she travels a lot. Hey, Patty. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Bob. So uh, I think you're a fascinating person, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about you so they get a sense of who they're talking to today? (laughs) You bet. wouldn't describe me as fascinating, but I'll take it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm um, an entrepreneur, I'm an investor, I'm a corporate hack, I'm, I'm all of those things. Like most people in, in our generation and the generations that follow us, I do a lot of different stuff and have a lot of interests. And really, all of it is centered on one thing, helping leaders change the world. And the way I do that is through enabling them to carry out large scale change programs, particularly when it requires a cultural change. It's very, very hard to shift culture because when you've been a leader for a while, you realize one thing, people don't change when you tell them to, they change when you enable them to. And from an entrepreneur's perspective, that's incredibly difficult because they're looking to change markets. When you're a leader within a corporation, it's incredibly hard because you're not only changing markets, you're also looking to shift a, a corporate culture, which tends to be pretty deep seated. Um, and, you know, I, I came to this work, like I do most things, not really realizing that that's what I've always done. I remember about 10 years ago, meeting with a, a guy who's still my mentor, really amazing um, C-suite executive from a, a large Fortune 100 company. And I was at one of those kind of inflection points. I had just finished my um, my PhD research on women who hold board of director positions in publicly held life sciences and technology businesses, which I'll talk about how pivotal that was in, in a moment. Um, and so talking with him about kind of where, where do I go from here? Up until then, I had done a lot of work around defining new markets, creating new markets, bringing net new products to existing markets and creating disruption. And all of that required a cultural shift and change. But I didn't really look at it like that. I was so used to working in tech where everything was about innovation. And so I didn't really have, because it was so natural to me, I didn't realize it was special that I could help shift cultures. And of course, you know, we all know what Drucker said about culture, right? Eating strategy for breakfast. And so what what my mentor had said to me was he kind of just held up a mirror and said, here are all the things you've done. Here's what you're really good at. I've been in the market for a really long time. And this is the hardest thing to do. A CEO, I was, you know, come from business to business. And when you're in business to business tech, one thing you realize pretty quickly is that you go to sell to the CEO or the C-suite at all. And they pretty much trust that you can get the technology or if not, it will come pretty soon. Or you can redesign a, a process or set of processes no matter how difficult or, or 
complex. What they don't trust is that people can actually change, nor will they. And so there was that kind of special component. Um, at about the same time, like I said, I had just finished my my doctorate um, research on on those women who had gone to the boardroom in technology and life sciences businesses, and there were so few of them. And I was fortunate enough to study who they were and what were those common characteristics and factors to get them there. But that wasn't my original dissertation topic. I had gone in for my PhD because I wanted to learn how to research like a scholar. I had a lot of interest in learning about my grandmother's life because she was a mystery and it. She had come from a foreign land um, where it wasn't so easy to, to find out information about her. And so my dissertation talk was going to be related to what I was doing at the time, which was very much in the virtual world and building net new technologies. And I was fascinated by how we could actually do that, never actually meet each other. And what did that look like? And I ended up having to take this feminist leadership theory class. It was required. And I grew up in the Northeast in a pretty conservative family. And I'd roll my eyes at the word feminism in feminist because I thought it was something different. And remember, I grew up in tech and I was always the only woman in the room. So it was pretty normal for me to, to work with, with men. And I didn't really think about it. And so there I was in that classroom. And, and I remember on the first day learning about Carol Gilligan, who's the founder of feminist leadership theory, and sitting there listening and going, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? I've been so focused at the time in a very large German company, so focused on being the only American in the room or the only one who doesn't know how to code or isn't a developer. I'd never really realized that I'd always been the only woman in the room. And, and then I started looking around and going, what's the research out there? Who are the other women who are in tech? And there was none and that existed at the level I was interested in, which was the board level, because I love boardrooms and what they can do. And so that's how I, I went down that path. And what I realized as part of that journey and, and learning about these women is that there's a lot of common traits with male counterparts and a lot of differences with male counterparts. And by the way, that's okay. And at the time, people were really trying to hide it, you know, treat, treat us all equally um, of the best intentions. But the truth is, we are different and not just because of our genders. And it was really very interesting. And so I, that really brought in um, a lot of different types of context into the work that I was doing around um, large scale cultural change. So we'll come back to feminist leadership theory in a second. And I must tell you that as a uh, Southern uh, raised as a wasp, I'm, you know, this will be interesting for me to learn. I mean, should I be concerned, Patty? <laughs> okay. Okay. So you're going to indoctrinate me, but we'll circle back to that. I need to kind of build myself up to it. So in the meantime, let me just ask you, because I've done some consulting too, uh, you know, it's hard being a consultant, wanting uh, to go to the, the sales process because that's really tough. But, you know, how do you as an outsider, regardless of if it's the feminist perspective or any perspective, you know, change management and culture, man culture change are really, really, really difficult. Depending on the organization, some are more entrenched than others. All are political. I mean, I don't care if it's two people or, you know, 10,000. They're all political. How do you come in and effectuate that change? Uh, I've worked for some big companies. I mean, people are often entrenched and they'll they'll do the yes stuff, but they're not really going to change much because you might upset their apple cart. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it is incredibly hard. And that's why 75% of change management programs fail because of that exact reason. And so, you know, like any good consultant, um, you go in and you do a current state assessment, right? You, right. you talk to a bunch of people, you first, first and foremost, if they're, if someone's going to bring you in to, to affect change, hopefully it's at the top, because unless the top spot in, nothing's going to it's change. It's going nowhere. Tone, that's right. The tone at the top is incredibly important, not just from a, um, you know, I'll walk around and say all the right things, but also I'm going to invest in this, right? And that's that's really what it comes down to. This is important. I'm going to put money and muscle behind it. And so that's the first thing. And really understanding what is it we're trying to achieve? Why are we trying to make this change? And then um, what's, what's the challenge? What's the issue? And so in finding all of that out very quickly, I start to understand um, what's the change? Why are they trying to do it? And then who is most impacted? And that's where some of the Carol Gilligan work came in. And, um, you know, just a, it's funny because it's one of those things that kind of happened naturally with me. And then I put a framework around why do I think this way? The Carol Gilligan work around feminist leadership theory she was a, a PhD um, student at the time. She met Kohlberg, who, of course, did the the moral reasoning work that that we all know about, right? How do we make value based decisions? It's the six stages, and so she she helped with that study. And um, <laughs> what she realized was, wait a minute, those six stages of moral development are based on all white males because they're the only ones who are in the study. And when I look around the world, I see that the world's made up of more than just all white males. And the other thing about Kohlberg's work, which, you know, you've been through MBA school, you've studied his work. And if you've been to any business school undergrad, you've studied his work, um, was that that perspective of the moral stages of development was considered superior to women's. And it was very much around um, respecting hierarchy and justice. Well, Gilligan did the same same study after she got her PhD. PhD, so as a postdoctorate, and uncovered this very famous um, result, which was women or people who have female traits, because some men are like this as well. And it's very important to understand that we're talking about traits. We're not really talking about if you're a woman, you're like this. If you're a man, you're like that. It doesn't quite work that way. Um, but if you display female traits, it means you're relational in your decision making, meaning whenever you change something, you consider the impact on the people. Um, on what programs they're running or what, um, you know, a customer will have to replace with another thing, right? So it's very much how does this impact in relation to that's very disruptive in a boardroom when they're used to linear decision making. So when it comes to helping an organization to change, you really have to understand who are the key stakeholders who are going to be impacted? And then how will that um, impact them? In what way will their lives be different? And what's going to cause them pain? And then getting the folks together who are ultimately responsible for the success or failure. And it tends to be people that are, you know, from different functions across an organization, across geographies, and getting them on the same page is really hard if you let them stay inside of their heads. So instead, what we do is we say, okay, here are our top three to five stakeholders that have come through from the, the current state um, assessment. Here's what it is that their charter is. And, um, and here's what they want from you. And what does that relationship look like? And really spending time understanding that with the decision makers and a lot of times with the folks who report to them, the people who actually are responsible for the resources who do the work. And from that work, you get very, very clear on 
What is it you're going to try to achieve? Um, who is going to be impacted? Who are you going to be your early adopters? Who are going to be the ones who are not going to be very happy to see you coming? And creating a plan around that where you're leveraging the early adopters through that those um, stages of individual change, going back to what we talked about in the beginning around people don't change when you tell them to, they change when you enable them to. And Prosky's model of change is really at the core of everything that we do for large scale change. First, there's awareness, then there's personal desire, right? So awareness, something's different. And then personal desire, I want to be part of the change and then knowledge. I know what my role is, and then I'm given the tools to actually execute on it. And then the world around me is reinforcing this new behavior as normal, and then it goes to um, mainstream. And each one of those stages, you use the, the typical thing that we all know that folks do when they hire firms to come in for change management, which is why it's so ineffective, is they take the org view of, let's have a vision. Let's then structure or architect how it is that that that's going to look like, right? They create the PowerPoint strategy and then they say, okay, let's do the org design and all of that. But that's telling people what to do. And it's a very, it's, it's, it's labor intensive. It's a lot of work um, and it tends to be multiple workshops and then coaching as folks are ultimate, you can have the best PowerPoint in the world. It's, it's just like when you're going to pitch, right? Your PowerPoint's important, but not really. What's really important are the relationships, period. And so enabling folks to go out and talk with those stakeholders, understand and use empathy, really, truly use almost a design thinking approach of, hey, you know, something's going to shift. And, and the majority of folks that um, from a, a large corporation perspective that need our help are folks that are considered cost centers. If sales or development needs to change, most people are going to change because they're the ones who are going to create the product and the ones who are going to pay for your check. It's the, everything in between the IT organizations, the marketing organizations, where change is a lot harder to create cross-enterprise. And so enabling them to do that and really have it be relationship-based and also very much understand how is this change, let's say you're putting out a big compliance program, which most you know technology-intensive and highly regulated industries do especially now on cybersecurity and all of that, um, how do you get those folks to have that kind of mindset and brain that it becomes part of how they work? And how do you make it essential to their work as opposed to in addition to? So very relationship-based, very super clear, um, very pragmatic. And along the way, it's very hard to measure culture. So we do these things called cultural pulse checks, again, along the Prosky model and understanding with those early adopters, where are they at? Are they aware of the understanding? Do they have a personal desire to be part of it? Um, do they have what they need to go out and be ambassadors of the change? And the whole time you're tinkering, you're you're giving different kinds of enablement, and then you're you're putting in the reinforcement mechanisms, right? You're you're constantly seeing what your levers are, and then the the mainstream folks are coming right up behind them. So very program, very relationship, always with data so that you know where you stand and you know what's working and what isn't. And people need to see iterative progress when it comes to change. Otherwise, they lose interest. And that's certainly part of it as well. So we're talking about big organizations right now for the most part. Uh, what kind of exercises do you take people through? I mean, I'm sure there has to be, besides the uh, servicing of issues, et cetera, how, what is the 
what is the buy-in process emotionally to people across the organization into it? Because as you said, if you're going to take an abstract approach to this and basically draw things on a piece of paper or an org chart, it gets pretty antiseptic. And, you know, most people are like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so if you're really talking about culture change, you know, you're talking about the soft pieces. You know, how, how what what kind of things do what do you do to draw that out and to and to elicit? the key issues, and then to buy into, okay, I'll buy into your process, and then I'll help the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you turn uh, potential people on the sidelines or naysayers into evangelists and people yeah, who are because, really because adopted? It, yeah. it, without them, I mean, it's just a, a well, it it's, it's, it's another yeah. just management exercise that we'll spin yep. in circles and smile and play along, but you know, then we're sure. going to go back to being the org- old organization as soon as exactly. consultants out of here. Exactly. So it all is a part of being that part of that 25%. And, you know, there's really no replacement for fireside chats. There's no replacement for meeting somebody, whether it's on the phone, if you're virtual, or you can go into their office and you just talk to them, right? You're pretty clear that when you walk out, you understand what their concerns are. They understand um, that, what you're trying to bring about and then what it means for their world. But mostly what they understand is you're on board to help them. So it's going in and saying, okay, so, so here's what's happening, right? Here's the, the change that management wants us to have. Here's why it's important. And now let's talk about it. How does this impact your world? What will be new or different? And then you just essentially let folks talk. And what you want to get them to, it's kind of like sales 101. You you let folks talk and they'll ultimately give you a, a shopping list of all the reasons it's going to fail, all the reasons that they or their team can't adopt it because they're too busy. And quite frankly, they probably have a conflicting change management program going on, which everybody has a change management program. They're fully bought into and totally forget that they hate it when people try to bring change on to them and I'm the worst culprit. So you get them to list it and you you just say, okay, let's address number one. What does that look like? And you're dispelling myths and things that aren't myths, you go and you address those. You meet with the team, you bring them to the forefront, and then you start inviting those key folks. And it's really important to do this in stages. Who must be on board? So part of the exercise that we do in a workshop is, who must be in our corner? Who must be an early adopter because they have positional influence or they have character influence? Um, if they're not using it, they're they're part of, you know, kind of the first layer of, of, of challenges that we have to address. Um, and so getting those folks to a point where they show up to the meeting, they become the star of the show. And it's very hard because you see folks fail when they become kind of um, an order taker. Um, around, okay, tell me all the things that are wrong and let me go fix it. Because then you're not really moving things forward, you're tinkering. And so there's a lot of coaching around how to facilitate those conversations. But there is no replacement for building those relationships for complete honesty, um, no sugarcoating, um, and that we are in the same corner and we're going to do whatever, whatever is needed to ensure that this is part of your ability to be successful. And one of the things where folks really fall down once they get people on board is they don't put the reinforcement mechanisms in. They don't say, okay, Bob, so I just met with you. You are the the CFO or COO or whatever of an organization. So you're responsible for the operational stuff and, um, and budget and all of that. And by the way, one of your MBOs is now going to be on this thing. That 
last part doesn't happen, which then doesn't reinforce that behavior. So at the same time that you're going and you're talking with those stakeholders who you're essentially disrupting um, to get them on board and get folks from their organization at the execution layer once the, you know, the, the, the work actually starts to get done. You always want to have a governance structure where you have the, the top folks are responsible for strategy where you're maybe meeting with them once a quarter to give them an update and do kind of the managed by exception. Do we still want this policy change, the strategy change, whatever. And then you have the next layer down, the people who are kind of the VP level folks who own are responsible for it. And so then you have the the VP level or whatever level it is in the organization where the people who are responsible for the resources that will actually execute on a change program partake. And and what you're you're working with them on is turning up and turning down the heat, right? This is important. We'll spend our time on it um, versus this isn't important anymore. Because with a change program, there tends to be sequencing. Um, The middle of that governance structure, which is really a governance and communication structure, is a a PMO office. The people who are really on the hook (laughs) for the most part for the entire program. And their job is to ensure that the strategy aligns with the execution and that the execution aligns with the strategy, meaning what we say we're going to do is what we do. And what we're doing is what we said we were going to do. And it sounds simple. It's incredibly hard to your point in that, well, yeah, 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 each other in in a meeting and then go back and really not change anything. And these are the folks who keep that momentum going. And then um, the next layer down is that execution layer. And that's where you get the folks who are impacted. You, you get them embedded in the work, in the design of the change, and then in the execution of the change. And you're learning so much in the beginning stages. Um, where is this sticking? Where is it not sticking? Where is it solving a problem? Where is it creating a problem? Um, do people really understand this change? Are they really changing their behavior? And that's a mix, again, of those cultural pulse checks, as well as the numbers, right? Or we have less of the, the people calling in to multiple folks to get something um, answered, or are they going to a call center, for example, if that's that's the change. And so lot, lots of coordination there, um, lots of communication, and, and it can flow like a machine. Years ago, earlier in my career, uh, you know, like a lot of people probably in their 20s and 30s, you know, I, I read everything I could get my hands on. And particularly when I got involved in kind of some reorg stuff, I read tons and tons of turnaround management books. And then, you know, like a lot of people, biographies of business people that I really admired. And uh, for whatever reason, to this day, Gordon Bethune sticks out for me because I actually met him in person and thought he was a cool guy. But I loved his book. And uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, the title of it. But, you know, he came in and essentially did a complete turnaround of uh, Continental Airlines. But you know, you think turnaround, a lot of people think of, you know, it's a balance sheet exercise. And in that case, it actually was. But more importantly, if I recall the book correctly, was he laid out like four principles and they were all cultural in nature. And my uh, my question or comment really is, is that, you know, to get it from being like a feel good thing, this is pretty comprehensive. You have to have, you know, it's not like you can say, oh, we want people to be more productive or, you know, or we, or we want it, we want nicer people. I mean, our customers will be more important. Your compensation systems, your your recruiting process, your annual review process. I mean, 
give us some sense of, you know, large scale corporate change. This is a pretty uh, woven spider aspect. web. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. all these things are mutually reinforcing. It's this is really complex. Yeah, it's it's huge. And and it's really important what you just brought up. And that is, you know, we're going to businesses are defined by processes which are enabled by technology right and and we all get that you know supply chain and and all of that stuff but really you got to start with the people and we know from mckinsey that there are four levers to change there's the the role modeling the people of influence who are are everybody's looking at right and if they're modeling the new behavior and talking about the new behavior every single chance that they get in in town halls and all that kind of stuff and then there's the compelling stories which we see every almost every commercial we see as a compelling story and that means people who look like me think like me talk like me do the same kind of role that I do and they're out there sharing the stories around I used to do this like everybody else, and now I do that, and boy, life is so great, right? So getting those kind of before and after stories, and, and you're collecting both the role modeling and the compelling stuff and, and getting people out there as, as starting with the early adopters and then um, all the way through, and it continues. And then we start the real hard stuff, right? When we start trying to scale, and scale then becomes woven through those HR processes at the individual level. And that's um, from an a enablement perspective, which is the third leader. That is the, the training programs. If you don't make training mandatory, people probably aren't going to do it. If you don't make the training um, something that truly changes the way someone is going to do something, it's not going to work. And diversity and inclusion, which I know we're going to talk about in a second, is a great point. I can't remember when I haven't taken sexual harassment training and all of those, you know, kind of code of conduct and, and all of that stuff. And I laugh at the sexual harassment training because the joke is always it teaches you how to do it versus not. And <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> But those, those trainings are important. The challenge when it comes to change, though, is people stop with the education and programs and they aren't really thinking about, but is that really going to change how someone does their job, right? Going back to the, this is not in addition, change isn't in addition to your role because it won't get done. It's how you do your role. And so then we start looking at enablement from a different perspective. I come from enterprise tech, so I think like an enterprise tech person, and that's why I don't tend to separate process from technology unless I absolutely have to. And so what that means is, are the tools that I'm putting out there for my workforce are they reinforcing this new type of behavior? So I know that we'll probably talk a bit about some of the work that I'm doing with SAP around technology and, and diversity and inclusion. But we, we are 150 different unconscious biases at play in our brains at any given time. They're unconscious. We don't think about them. Right? It's just what our, our status quo is. And those are, are cognitive. Those are social. And we those do not change unless there's a catalyst outside of us for change. So how about putting tools out there if you know that there is a status quo around your topic and you know what those are and you do because that's the work that, that we do up front. You then can use technology or use a process to do this thing called decision interruption. So you brought up recruiting, which is a great example, right? Performance management is another one. 
when you're a people manager, and, and this doesn't matter to your point earlier, this could be a, an 80,000 person company. This could be a three person company. These become very routine things you do, writing job descriptions, doing performance reviews, hiring, they become rote activities, which means they're prime for unconscious bias. And so I go and I take a training or I sit in a, a workshop and then I go, wow, that's really interesting. Boy, things need to change. But they don't because all I did was take the program and education and boy, wasn't that interesting. But by the way, if I don't make my number um, this week, I'm in big trouble. Right. Or if my my big um, um, innovation project I have, um, I have my next scrum meeting and oh, my God, we haven't done anything yet or we're not even close. Right. The, the, the actual things I get paid for um, all of a sudden get in the way and become a priority because I, I will get fired. And so what happens is when you start looking at how am I going to enable people as part of their day job, and I do things like use technology, machine um, learning, or, or augmented intelligence to do what's called decision interruption. So I create a job description, and the machine can tell me, hey, so this word and that word really are what science tells us is that if you use these combinations of words, you're going to get the same kind of um, uh, applicant that you always get. And, and, you know, that's not going to help us from our change management goals of having a, a diverse um, population that looks like this, whatever the underrepresented things are. And what's really great about using technology as a decision interrupter, regardless of the topic, is that it takes out this thing called blame and shame. People don't like to be blamed and shamed for doing things that is a certain way. They're enabled to do things that way. And there are other reasons that contribute to it. And that's not how you get people to change. Instead, you show them a new way and you link it to performance goals from the, the company's perspective. Um, so that's one thing. And the next thing is the reinforcement, right? So if this change is indeed important and I go back and I'm using this new technology or I'm trying out a new process and that gets in the way of me achieving the job that I'm paid to do, the, the new development I'm paid to lead, the sales team I'm, I'm paid to, to manage, um, the marketing team I'm paid to lead. If it's not helping me do that, um, if it's conflicting, I'm not going to do it. So a few things happen. You brought up bonuses, right? That has to change. We have to reinforce the right behavior. If you have a sales organization who's um, a bunch of farmers and you want them to be hunters, then maybe don't compensate them to be farmers, right? So it's it's really, really important that those things get changed. And that's where people fall down. That's the hard hard work? What will incentivize people? And now it's even more difficult because we used to take a one size fits all approach around um, how do we use those HR levers around pay, compensation, um, other kinds of, of people related um, awards, you know, extra vacation, going to Hawaii as part of the, the, the top team or whatever that thing might be. And 
now, because we have five generations at work for the first time in, in history, and in 2020, it will be four generations. Um, what that tells us and in, in what we're seeing, and of course, we know that millennials are digital natives, and oh my God, what about Generation Z? What the heck are they going to bring to the forefront? That's going to be really amazing, um, is that the one size fits all doesn't work anymore. And that's really one of the big things that's come out of the DNI work that I've been doing over the last few years. And has had a big implication from a change management program perspective. How and what um, would enable a baby boomer to go from where they are to where you need them to be, whether it's from a skill perspective or from an incentive perspective or whatever that might be, is probably going to look really different than what I would need in order to get from where I am to where I need to be and would look really different than what a millennial would and what um, Generation Z would. And by the way, they're going to have differences within their own generations. And so that's brought a whole nother level of complexity. So imagine you have a large organization and you need to change your bonus structure. You need to change how performance reviews are done. You want to completely overhaul the recruiting and onboarding, um, you know, highly, highly, highly um, just crazy processes, um, highly complicated processes. And now we're saying, of course, you have to scale. But oh, by the way, it has to feel unique and, and really suiting to that individual person. And oh, by the way, it has to be suited to the individual, but we really need teamwork, right? So there's all sorts of just highly complex things that have to be thought through. Um, and the truth is, we can do it, right? The technology is there to enable it. Um, what we need to do is that upfront hard piece around who are we? Where do we have gaps? Where are people today? Where do we need them to be? What is it going to take for, let's say, we figure out our, our six personas or five personas, whatever they might be, a, a typical um, a typical worker, and also remembering that workforces are different now, right? So a whole nother level of complexity is the whole gig, um, the gig economy, where now between 40 and 60% of most workforces in, in across industries are contingent. So they're not even on the payroll. And we've tended to treat those folks as, you know, outside of the organization, right? They're lucky if they get invited to the holiday party. And they can't, we can't do that anymore. These are people who are out on social representing um, brands. They are out at conferences representing brands. They're talking to customers representing brands. They are creating products. So how do we bring in them into the fold? What does that look like, that journey of change for them? Very, very, just a lot of work, really rethinking the status quo when it comes to designing the systems that support that. Well, I'll probably reveal that I'm a COO. You know, my tendency that or the tendency I've seen is for, you know, consultants to come in, the senior managers to play with it for a while, uh, act like it worked, declare victory, move on. And if the kind of people systems and other systems aren't put in place to really drive the operational acceptance of it, it disappears very quickly. It's got to be institutionalized. It has to be. And operationalizing change is incredibly difficult. And, you know, you just pretty much name the three ways you do it, right? Your investment buckets are people, process, and technology. And so uh, in, in uh, the process and technology components, 
you know, you might throw up at me considering your job. Those are the easy parts. The people part is the hard part. And, and considering that process and tech are pretty difficult, <laughs> I imagine how hard the people part is. But what you just said is so important. It is not a one and done. It's not a light switch you flick on. It just doesn't work that, that way. And I think one of the biggest um, things we have going for us in this work is we remember that we're human too. How does it feel when change is impacted on you, Bob, right? How does that feel? And then everything around you is telling you to act the old way. Probably not going to work for you, right? And it's the same. And so it's it's very, very difficult, um, but also very simple. And it always goes back to, are the executives fully on board? And, you know, the truth is most organizations, there's a heck of a lot of change fatigue, and combating that at the executive level, at the, the you know, that strategic level, at the operational level, and at the tactical level are incredibly difficult. That has to be at the forefront. Forefront. You have to have those cultural pulse checks to know where people are, to understand how to get out of that fatigue component, which truly is around engagement. It's, it's hard stuff. We won't dwell on it too much, but a lot of times it's just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Yep. Uh, so... Let's go ahead and switch into diversity inclusion. Uh, it's an outgrowth of some of the stuff we've already been talking about. And so I'll just start off with a basic question. What is diversity inclusion and how are those two words different? Yeah, it's such a, a great, great question. So for so long, when I first came into this topic, it came from the gender lens, just simply from um, the work that, that I had done. And um, around around women in tech. And um, so it was all about diversity. You have to believe in diversity. Diversity is important for innovation. Diversity, this, diversity in the boardroom, blah, 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 blah. And so and then I'd hear things like women are minorities or African-Americans are minorities or whatever population who was not a white guy was a minority. And I thought, wait a minute, that's a little confusing because according to the U.N., the white Caucasian males are the minority. So what exactly are we talking about? And then just a little bit more research. And I went back to the, wait a minute. So they're talking about business and, and who's in charge. Okay, I get it. Um, but ultimately, diversity is about numbers. And that's all it is, is about, about counting the people based on the box that you're putting them in. So you can have, we, I, I kind of, uh make shudders when I when I hear people say, you know, um, you can have diversity or not. And I think, but have you looked around the world by 2045? Um, there will be no master race in the United States of America by 2045. So we're almost there. We have diversity, whether we like it or not. As business leaders, it is our decision if we want to include diversity into our organizations. And that's where the difference is. Diversity is numbers. Inclusion is culture. We live in a diverse world. We don't live in an inclusive world. And so going back to that, that aha epiphany moment um, I had when I was studying at the uh, scholarly level was around, okay, so people are different depending on where they come from, you know, who they are, right? Lots of social economic differences. You are from the South. I'm from the Northeast. You and I are different because of that, right? So there are all of these differences. And if we just focus on the numbers and diversity, what we're missing is that point to welcome the diversity. It's really interesting to me. There's 
this work from um, Edie Weiner, where she talks about how we've become, we're, we're starting to move away from the people who make it in the world, from being the haves versus have-nots to being the cans versus can-nots. And I think entrepreneurs are such a good example of that. So what does that mean? That means that before it was all about wealth. If I made it, it was because I was born into the right family who had the right connections with the right bank account. And my goodness, doors just were held open for me. And now we're in this world because of the internet, of things, the world being flat, um, we're all so much smarter and more informed um, that it becomes about the can versus can nots, meaning, you know, I'm able to succeed and I do all this work and it's all about grit versus I'm not able to succeed because I don't have that can do attitude. Now, combine being a have and a can and my gosh, right, you're you're in the front. You can be a have and a can not, and you probably won't make it. So really interesting. And then I combine that with the work that David Pierce Snyder does around this thing called complex opacity, which I am absolutely in love with. I'm a big believer in complex adaptive systems. So you and I are talking, I hung up, I hang up, you hang up. And because of something you said to me, what I used to think is now different than what I do think. And as a result, the actions I take, the conversations I have, all of those things change, right? And it just keeps, and then then so on and so on. So the people I talk to, they change, and then the people they talk to change, so on and so forth. So the system's constantly adapting. And that's really, really hard. So what we see a lot in in the world of, of leadership um, is that people are realizing that change is not the only constant complexity is. And they start to try to figure out how to be successful despite change. What complex capacity teaches us is that in order to be successful today, and oh my God, absolutely from a leadership future perspective, tomorrow is the ability to be successful because of the complexity. Now let's bring that back to diversity and inclusion. We live in a complex world. If we continue to only hire people who look like us, think like us, talk like us, what my friend Adam Quinton defined as mirrorocracy, right? Everybody you bring on looks like the person in the mirror. Um, then we're not going to get the benefit of complexity. And that's a problem because when we look at who we're selling our products to, who is buying our services, chances are they may look like the person in the mirror, but they're probably looking like other people too. And don't we want the people who are creating our products, marketing our products, selling our products, don't we want them to look like the market? that we want to be in so that we truly understand how people, what people use, how they use it, what they value, all of those things that really can only come from, from firsthand experience. You only get that from inclusion. You could have diversity without inclusion. It's not going to stay diverse very long. Once you are inclusive, you figure out and you train your managers and, and you do all of those things to say, how can we create complex capacity? It's very, very, very hard to lead a diverse team. <laughs> but let me ask a question. I mean, so taking that a little further, I mean, in a way I could interpret that as, okay, fine. Uh, I'm selfish. I want to make money. I run a business. Uh, I'll just set up my marketing and sales team to look like my market. Why do I need... Why do I need more you know, diversity and inclusion in the rest of my organization, in my IT department, in my, you know, uh, you know, my ops department, my accounting department? You know, it gets a little more tangential to say how that really ends up in more sales and revenue, doesn't it? Or does it? What am I missing? What are others missing when they think that way? 
Yeah, I think first, I think people have a pretty narrow view of what diversity is and and unless they know about what diversity is. So I, I look across multiple organizations and I see um, people savvy leaders who are understanding that diversity takes on multiple things, cognitive diversity, right? People who think differently, um, people who are differently abled. There's a big movement at SAP, for example, around autism at work, it's called, I believe. And it's about getting um, folks with Asperger's into their development ranks. Um, really incredible. Um, from a finance perspective, wouldn't it be interesting to have people who had different constructions of meaning, right, who have different cognitive capabilities and skills? Wouldn't it be interesting if the people who are developing your products were truly empathetic because of firsthand knowledge of what it's like to use these products? If, I don't know, you live in are from and grew up in India, it's going to be very different than if some guy in, in the Silicon Valley who's never been to India and never will go um, creates those products. So certainly really, really different. But having that broader view of diversity is important. There are certain um, certain roles where it's not necessary, right? Things like call centers, for example, in a certain um, industry might not need the type of, of ethnic diversity, but they might need generational diversity. Um, definitely in, in plants, right? Highly um, uh, manual labor, it definitely pays to have generational diversity, people who've been working with the same kinds of machines for years, and how to optimize. So it's about what is your definition of diversity? What does that look like? Where do we need it most? Um, when it comes to an IT organization, if you don't have folks who understand how tools are used, that it's not about IT adoption, instead, it's about creating products and rolling them out and having them be essential, you'd probably want to have some marketing brains there. You probably want to have some HR brains in there. If you're a business leader and you're looking at your business purely from a transactional perspective, you're going to miss out on everything that we all know because it's been proven over and over again in research. Well, the irony is to me, having worked for a very, very large company, is that with a very progressive diversity program, just as the kind of movement was starting, say, you know, or certainly popularized on a massive scale, say in the mid mid to late 90s, you know, we were becoming ever more diverse. But, you know, talk about groupthink. I mean, mm -hmm. you, can, you can bring people in from all kinds of backgrounds, but if you still have the same incentives and the same I don't know, just the, the culture was still not invented here and, you know, yeah. don't take risk. It's like, well, what was the point? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. all we've done is taken people that aren't, you know, all, okay, fine. It's not all a bunch of white guys and white gals. Now it's a bunch of other people, but we're going to channel them into thinking the same way. So we haven't really accomplished much other than, you know, okay, we can fill out some you know forms better and feel good about ourselves. But but that's why the change management component is so important, right? Like to your point around, but if we're not going to change the mechanisms and, you know, the truth is a lot of people say they want change <laughs> as long as it doesn't impact them. So, or the decisions that they make. Right. Group think tends to be when you're taking linear decisions, right? So you, it sounds to me like you had a diverse culture, but not an inclusive culture. So I think we've talked a little bit about why businesses care. I mean, and we and, and most of us at this point understand that, you know, when you have diverse and inclusive cultures, you can speak and understand your customers' needs better. You have a variety of opinions internally, which helps you create more thoughtful products, more thoughtful processes. You have a bigger, you know, a more, you know, engaged uh, employee base, which has all kinds of benefits. 
you mentioned on some interesting things that SAP was doing. Tell us a little bit more about your work with SAP and their diversity inclusion program. Yeah, so I, I can talk to the, the the product side. The SAP is was born a global company mm-hmm. um, without being SAP commercial. They were they were founded in Germany um, and you know did business throughout Europe almost I think probably from day one, which made them an international company from from day one. Um, so um, they have of course their programs that they do for SAP, right? Their their own people. The focus that I have in working with them is on the product. They are they have. SAP um, HCM on-prem product, and then really the, the future is the cloud, the success factors um, platform and um, cross HCM suite of products. So it's all the core HR stuff as well as the, the talent solution, right? So a real end-to-end. And so going back to the whole 150 different unconscious biases that played our brains at any given time, what's the role of technology, right? Because unconscious bias really hinders the ability to, to be inclusive because you know, to your point, we haven't really changed much, right? If we haven't changed how we make decisions, and that's critical. So it is very, very overwhelming to do diversity and inclusion, just like it's very, very overwhelming for any change program. And this is a cultural change program that where technology and process enable that change, but it truly comes down to the people. And so what happens, Bob, when you start a change program that feels like boiling the ocean is you go, oh my goodness, where the heck do I start? Where do I start? And and you can't boil the ocean on this. And so what we found out is is where you start or where most people start, I should say, is they bring in analytics, right? And analytics, um, it, it really beneficial, but also can be limited. Let's not forget, and, and I know that you know, you're very familiar with this in, in your role as a COO, with a CHRO, they go to bed at night worrying about compliance and they wake up in the morning worrying about compliance, right? It's, it's very, very difficult regardless of where you do business in the world. Whenever you have people involved, you have a compliance challenge. And it used to be, maybe not in the US, but in other, other parts of the world, particularly in emerging economies, where it'd be worth it to pay the fine. Just just break the rule, pay the fine. Well, that's not really happening anymore. The fines are huge. It really hurts your PR. Um, a country can shut you down for years, right? So there, there are all of those things. So we have to really consider compliance. And I bring that up because people will look at their diversity and inclusion through analytics and they're either handcuffed or they're just so used to doing that kind of data analysis from a compliance perspective. In other words, in the US, they're only collecting data that it re- is required for an EEO1 form. And chances are they're pretty limited on the other data that that can be collected from a privacy perspective. You can't ask folks. But that's the first place you start, right? You say, okay, where do I have a problem? Only analytics can help me understand that. So what does that look like? It could be anything from, wow, I don't seem to be recruiting in the kind of talent I really want to. For example, I work in an an older industry and all of my new hires or people who are applying in my talent pool are in Gen X and in the baby boomer generation. I'm not getting anybody from an up and coming talent generation. Huge problem. Oh my goodness, what do I do? That's happening over there in Texas and in the US. But over in England, for example, I seem to be losing lots of women in this particular part of the organization, right? So it really enables you to understand where you have a problem. That's where most organizations and leaders stop. And that is the equivalent of, I really want to change, I don't know, my physical appearance. Maybe let's say I, I, I want to maybe lose some weight and I go out and I buy a scale. 
I don't change what I'm eating. I don't go to a gym. I don't do those things. I expect the scale to move, right? And that, by the way, pretty much sums up most change management programs um, and why they fail. So what we do at SAP from a product perspective, we say, you're right. That analytics, that's super important because it lets us know absolutely what's working, but also what do we address and where do we address and with whom do we address? Now what? So what we've done is we have identified the top key decisions that most impact a leader's ability to either hinder or harness all the best and available talent. And that's really what diversity and inclusion is. And that's what I tell my clients. It's not about diversity and inclusion. It's about harnessing all the best and available talent. Why is that important? Have you tried to hire someone, Bob? It's really hard, right? (laughs) It's my big, it's frankly, and I've said this, hiring is actually my biggest fear. Um, And I'm working with an early stage company that has a massive uh, product launch that's, you know, fairly disruptive. And you'd think that's what I'd be worried about. But but the thing that makes me more concerned about anything is every time we hire somebody, because we're not that big of a company. And I'm, I'm so worried that we'll get it wrong because it has such an impact on our culture. Uh, it's really a tough thing. And then when they, if they don't work out, it's just awful for them and yeah. us. It, exactly. Right. You lose a lot. You lose a lot. You lose time. You lose momentum. You lose all that stuff. And so I'm going to say something a little provocative. And that is I don't actually. Think Patty, there's... please. We don't do that on this show. Yeah. <laughs> please. I'd, I'd prefer you not. Thank you. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm such a lady. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure I really buy into this more for talent. Well, more for talent I buy into, but the shortage of talent. And it, it really kind of comes down to if you're going into the same room, talking to the same people about the same stuff, you're probably going to get the same people. So it's about understanding you've got to go where that all the, the talent is not where some of the talent is. And that requires extra work. But to your point, it's worth it. Because if you bring in someone who is counterculture, which, you know, is a whole nother series around, but then you're not being inclusive. Um, But that's counterculture that that hinders your ability to bring that big product to market, whether you are a startup where truly every second, every person, every dollar matters, um, or you're, you're a large business where absolutely every second, every dollar, every person matters, but you get some backup, right? You get, you get some things you can, you can pivot um, a lot faster in most cases. If you're not changing that, if you're not questioning your status quo and your unconscious bias around how you hire, right down to who you talk to, what job posting, what conferences you're going to, what colleges you're looking at if you're looking for early development, what kind of job description. One of the things that that kills me is um, baby boomers, right? Now we have this understanding that we got about another 20 or 30 years of work in our lives that didn't exist before. People are staying in the workforce longer, and yet all of our systems are set up to tell us youth matters, especially in tech, right? You and I know that. We're ancient in the tech world, um, but that youth matters in that you age out in your 60s from the workforce, and yet that's not what it looks like anymore. And so looking at your job descriptions, not only from a, am I using words like um, assertive and, you know, be number one in, in, I don't know, ambitious or whatever, things that are going to naturally attract a younger white male or things like, um, you know, um, 
just starting your career or whatever, things that would turn me off as someone older, but yet I'd have something to bring to the table to help you with your product launch. And so really looking at even the basic stuff around the words that you use, that's one of the things that SAP, the, the product that we're enabling you to do, right? It's who hire, sorry, who applies, who hires, um, how people are managed, who gets developed, how people are rewarded, who gets promoted, um, how people are compensated, all of those things require a decision where they're rote activities. So we have to startle people out of the way that they are not only getting the talent, which is a huge thing if you're worried about the shortage of, of good talent, right? Because you can hire anybody, but you want it to be the right person. But there, there's, there's the other piece. You also want them to stay or to get you to your next phase. So there's that component of not only do I want them to stay, not only do I want them to be engaged, I want them to give it all they got. So I have to rethink how I do things like develop everybody. How do I do my succession planning? How do I do performance reviews? My God, let's stop with the once a year, twice a year thing, right? Doesn't work, never has. And everyone um, hates it. Like, oh, like awesome. the oh. manager hates it, the employee hates awesome. it. It's the worst. It's awful. And so one thing that SAP does with their, and again, not being an SAP commercial, but but it is um, continuous performance management. We know that women and millennials in particular, and, and no doubt Gen Z coming in right after them, are big believers, not in those annual performance reviews, which is so archaic, it's unbelievable. And yes, we all dislike them. I mean, who loves being shut in in a room doing calibration as well? Oh my gosh, super fun. Um, just just awful. And all of a sudden you forget it's about performance, right? Um, but instead getting the regular input, think about being a CEO. You're judged every quarter, every quarter. So how can we do performance reviews for a year? What was important in January probably isn't going to be as important in December. And hopefully you don't have that long of a life cycle for what you're working on. So instead, it's not just about the, did I do those big things? It's how am I working? And so giving your leaders, your people leaders, the ability to have that continuous conversation, that continuous tweaking, that's what we all want. Because it directly impacts performance. And that requires a whole different kind of thought process that's pretty gosh darn natural. The other piece with the product component is going back to this whole thing around, let's get away from, from adoption as a mindset, right? Coming from the IT department, really thinking about not wanting to waste money, and rightfully so, right? Everybody's worried about the software on the shelf, whether it's user licenses or, or functionality. And that just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, and so what we're seeing with the products that we're using around diversity and inclusion, if we create products that that people leaders, and, and I'm going to get to the uh, why that's so important, um, if we're going to use technology that people leaders and the people that they lead use, they have to be considered essential to doing their jobs, to doing their work, to understanding where they stand. So I liken it to Google. I do not make a decision without Google. Google has become absolutely part of my decision process, which is something that they, that they um, had decided was their, their number one reason for being way back in their startup days. They wanted to replace part of a person's brain for decision making. That's what you want for your enterprise software when it comes to diversity and inclusion. You don't want the blame and shame. That tends to happen in program and education only where you leave everything you learned back in that room that you were just in. 
but instead you're delivering out these products that support the new processes, that support the mechanisms you have in place to reinforce the behavior that are essential to you leading your team, to being led, to representing who you are, and to making sure that the impact that you want to make, you the worker, you the leader, the impact you want to make in the organization you are enabled to make, and you're able to navigate. And, and just one thing on this, we have a very big focus on absolutely on the HR department as, as part of what we're doing. But it's really about HR, not necessarily as a service delivery, although that's important, but HR is a strategic advisor. And that's not only in the, the programs that they have, but in the tools they deploy. And the focus is on, on the line manager. Dr. Elizabeth Kellen from Cranfield University came out with a study about two years ago, and she's, she's magnificent. Um, and her study found that the glass ceiling wasn't where I studied it at, that, that top level, that C-suite board level. That, that's super important. But where it's most prominent is at the middle manager level. Think about that, Bob, right? It makes a lot of sense. It's where the people who are responsible for the majority of your workforce are. And so we need to enable them without the blame and shame on those tools, on those key decisions to not only shed light on if what they're doing is working, right, the decisions, but then give them the process tools to be able to do things differently, like performance reviews, like um, who you promote, who you put in your succession plan, who you hire and how you manage. So, Patty, we've been on for a bit over an hour, believe it or not. But with your permission, I want to switch gears, start talking about the other side of Patty Fletcher which is about entrepreneur and author and uh, female angel investor. And we'll probably cut this up into two shows if you want to keep going. What do you think? I think that sounds great. All right. So let's shift the gear a little bit. So, you know, let's talk about startups and your really awesome involvement there. So, um, and I think everyone should know, you're the entrepreneur in residence, uh, residence for Babson College or a part of Babson College, at least, correct? That is right. Yeah. Um, Babson has this incredible program um, through their um, their Center for Women in um, Executive and Entrepreneur Leadership, and it's called WinLab, and it's um, an accelerator, and they have it now in two locations. One's in Boston. One is down in Miami, where Babson has a satellite um, where, office. Where, where I am. That's right, where you are. I believe they came to Suffolk last year as well, uh, or this year. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of WinLab. I know Heather Jean McNeil uh, well, and I know the people that run the office here, and we've partnered with them. Um, I'll have to say that I interact with a lot of accelerators uh, in my other kind of life where in the startup world and with SUPEX, and uh, I found that the, the... the ladies that were coming through there were definitely a cut above in terms of how well they understood the process of being an entrepreneur and their ability to articulate than pretty much any other accelerator I dealt with in South Florida. I was incredibly impressed. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. And you saw that the first year of Miami, right? This was, they just concluded their, their first year. Yeah, that was the beginning. So I can only imagine after they get, their, get, the, get, get, get the game down a little pad a little right. more. I mean, it was amazing. 
Yeah, it, they're incredible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had the benefit of, of working with many of the, the entrepreneurs from the Miami program. Um, and and so what I do is, is an entrepreneur or executive in residence, whichever you want to have the EB, it changes. Um, so they, for their Boston program and their Miami program, and again, they, they will be doing this in other locations where Babson is going to have satellites, um, is they take them through this, this two semester um, accelerator. And the folks who are part of it up in the Boston area, there are 15 seats that are for Babson current students and alumni, and then five seats that are for their for the Boston City of Boston's WeBoss program, which um, they've partnered with Babson. They've looked at um, um, under underrepresented communities, um, and then those folks from those communities, those highly urban communities compete to get these five spots. And it's fascinating because in the beginning of the year, there is a difference, right? If you go to Babson, you, I mean, it's the best entrepreneurial program in the world. So you're going to come to the table with a very, at least intellectual understanding of what a startup is. And at Babson, you're, you're pretty much taught what a startup is based on how you and I would define a startup, meaning you want someone else to fund it, right? It's solving a big problem. You need external money, um, all of that kind of stuff. And with the WeBoss program, entrepreneur and startup is a little bit different. It's it's more business ownership. I, I own my business. It could be anything from, you know, having the store or you're doing something online. But there's this difference in thinking. What I see on the Babson side um, is what you saw and witnessed down in Miami, which is a lot of big picture thinking, right? Uh, the, the need to have external funding. And, and I don't see that with Boston. But by the end of the program, it's incredible how the, the we boss folks have blossomed and how they're thinking big and they see themselves differently and their role in the world differently. Um, and so my job in, in working with them and then in Miami, like you said, these are really accomplished women. They don't mess around. They don't suffer fools lightly. So they are there to truly accelerate their idea into a business, which is awesome. And so the role that that I do and the other EIRs do um, is to to go in and, and workshop. So last year I did one of the biggest challenges um, entrepreneurs have, particularly in the early stages, there's 5,001 things to do and they try to do all 5,001 things. And so um, it's really readying them for success, things around getting organized. And we end up doing an OKR, objectives and key results exercise to, to help them lead um, through how are they going to spend their time, right? Where do they prioritize? And we do a lot of stakeholdering and all that to, to build up to it. And then I, I do office hours with them. Um, if you're ever going to work with a startup, and, and that means helping their founder and counseling their founder, not only is it important to, to share what you know, right, those um, credentialed kinds of skills that you have and knowledge you have, because you have been there and, and done that. Um, and for me, the things that I've been there and done that with tend to be on the marketing side, the business development side, the early stage strategy and product development side. Um and then into go to market. They it, and then they bring in folks for legal and finance and all that stuff. Um, the other piece that is so important is not just about what you know, but it's about who you know. The thing that I realized, whether it's getting into a boardroom or getting funding for your business, is what you know and who you know are important, but not as important as who knows you. And so being willing to open up your network to people so that others can get to know them is 
critical. Um, and that's also part of the work that I do with Absom. And then, uh, and then before I got some questions, obviously I want to go to, but I'm, I think explaining your background is pretty cool. Uh, and can you tell us about Astia? Oh, I love Astia. Yes. So I met Sharon Bosmick, who is the um, the CEO of Astia, right after I finished my dissertation. It was probably in about 2009. Somebody had passed it on to her. Um, and Astia is um, is a nonprofit, the only global nonprofit. Um, originally focused in on increasing the representation of women in high growth entrepreneurship. And over the last few years, I'm on I'm on the board of, of Astia. I'm also an Astia angel, which I'm, I'm sure you want to talk about. Um, but um, what Sharon as CEO has done over the last few years is really enabled us to, to have a, a more aggressive mission. And that is to move from increasing the representation of women in high growth entrepreneurship to getting women funded, right? So we want more women, um, women founded businesses to be funded. The only way to do that is to, I don't know, open our wallets and fund them. And so it's not that hard, right? Just like how do we get more women in tech? Hire them, right? It's pretty easy to do. So um, instead so, of so just talking about it. And so with Astia on the board, you know, it's all about what you think. It's a, a pretty typical um, kind of governance fiduciary thing um, and really looking to understand how do we increase the funding? So there's a lot of ecosystem work and Astia has an ecosystem community of about 5,000 people. And the reason I've worked with Astia is the first real kind of women focused organization I've worked with is because of how it's set up. Sharon has been intentional in that we have 50% men and 50% women in the boardroom, 50% men and 50% women in the community. Why? Because the majority of decision makers, um, when it comes to funding, it's something, and depending on the report you read, it's you know 90, 80 to 90% of, of venture capitalists and angels are, are men. Um, only two to 5%, again, depending on the, the research you're reading, um, of external capital goes to female founded businesses, right? So it's so a real issue there. So having men involved is incredibly important. Having men be ambassadors and the ones standing on the stage is incredibly important because men will listen to other men. And so the work there that we do is absolutely working backwards from getting funding. And we do this in this proprietary approach called the expert sift where you know you kind of picture a funnel and there are a bunch of um, uh, startups that start at the top of the funnel. And by the way, you can enter the Astia funnel and have no women on your founding team, no women on the cap table, but by the time you're done, you will. And that is part of the agreement. Um, and so going through that funnel and there are multiple stages and you know it's not about perfecting your PowerPoint. It is about through those stages you're vetted first stage you're vetted um, is from the, I think the Astia team. And then it's a bunch of people who know marketing or know biz dev. And you eventually end where you have a, a CEO vetting right before it's the, are you ready to go um, start pitching? And you're meeting people the entire time. And so what's happening as an entrepreneur is you're getting the benefit of someone's knowledge or multiple people's knowledge and their social circles, right? Their business circles. And then you're starting to get people engaged and involved and excited. And then they want to be on your advisory team. And then they want to go introduce you to your friends who have pocket, their friends who have pocketbooks, right? They're, they're angels or if, if you need to go for VCs. So incredibly important. And I, I absolutely love that work. Um, a few years ago, um, Astia Angels was started. And that was incredible um, to, to do that. I 
can't remember. I should have come prepared for the numbers. I think we have 13 or 14 deals we've done, um, about uh, 12 million to 15 million um, invested in close to 40 million or something like that in syndicates. So, so we've been very busy. Um, it's been incredible. Yeah. And in talking, sorry, but talking about the quality of of um, who we have in the pipeline is is truly amazing because of that expert shift. Before I forget, I would just say to the listeners out there that uh, at Supex, um, the past two years we had a we had a women's forum the first year, and then we had a diversity and entrepreneurship forum last year, and we found them they both were incredibly well received. If you want to learn more about some of these organizations, including Astia, but also uh, Golden Seeds and the Jump Fund and Springboard Enterprises and uh, Start Out and they're not all focused just on uh, women entrepreneurs, but you know on other you know uh, lesser represented uh, uh, groups in startups and entrepreneurship as well. If you'll go to the Supex website, which is www.sup-x.org, and go to the sponsors page. They're, all the sponsors are hyperlinked, and if you'll stroll, scroll down to, say, the Alliance Partners, which are nonprofits, or, or the bronze-level sponsors, which are typically organizations that aren't nonprofit but also have a entrepreneur-focused mission, um, you'll find some great resources there, including Astia, who's been a partner of ours for a couple of years now. Going back to you, Patty, so let's follow up on what we are talking about with SAP and uh, – you know, startups and small businesses, they don't have those resources that SAP does, and, you know, or they might not even have an HR department and they sure as heck don't have a diversity and inclusion officer. Or So what what can they learn from these bigger companies about, you know, what are some of the businesses of diversity and inclusion and how does that help them as startups? I mean, why bother? Every serial female entrepreneur I've met and a few good male (laughs) serial entrepreneurs um, I have met have said, it only took me one startup to realize I should have focused on culture from day one. They don't need to learn from the big guys. They need to learn from each other. You just said it yourself. You're in a startup. You know every person you bring in matters. I love that you mentioned culture. That tells me that you are working on that from day one. If you create a culture that um, is all transactional, right, and that's the business you're in, fantastic. But if you create a culture that's all transactional, uh, uh, very, uh, you know, masculine and, you know, kill or be killed, and and you're working in a market that's not conducive to that, it's going to be really hard for you to change that culture by hiring in different people. So the one thing that that we can learn from what the big guys are doing and big gals are doing is that thing around unconscious bias. If I there if I am looking at who am I hiring? Like who's applying? Who am I hiring? How am I managing them? Um, am I how am I giving them the tools that they need in order to be successful? And I'm finding that I'm not getting the right outcome that I want, chances are I need to check my culture. I need to do things. I need to walk around the office and find out what people are focused on. Is that conducive with the kind of culture I want? Are we just copying um, job descriptions we found somewhere on from a Google search? Or are we really writing job descriptions based on the kind of culture that we want? When people join a startup, 
they're joining for a few different reasons, right? I'm a builder, so I have a very, very hard time doing an operational role. So you're probably going to want um, someone who else who's a builder, right? So it's super important. We all get that. So people join startups because they want to build. They like the excitement. They're also joining a team. You and I both know that when it comes to funding, I'm not going to put my money into a team I don't like, right? You're going to have the best product in the world. But if I don't think you are, you and your team are the ones that are going to be able to execute on it for multiple reasons, or if I just don't like you, I'm probably not going to invest in you because it's like a marriage. Well, guess what? When you go work for a startup, it's the same thing. It's an investment. It becomes a, a deep relationship, which means that um, if you are a startup, you are looking at who are we? What do we stand for? What do we value? What is important to us? Do the Does the way that we hire, does the way that we manage, does the way that we incent, is it conducive to those values? And it's a very simple exercise that you need a piece of paper and a pen to do and some feet to go walk around and some ears to listen after you ask the question. I read a horrifying article today about uh, the experience of women raising capital in USA Today and uh, you know, women talking about the, the, the article was talking about how only two and a half percent of funding for venture capital out of some obscenely large number in the billions last year went to women-led yeah. bi- women-led businesses which I don't in and of itself is news but actually some of the experiences of women actually getting you know invited out to talk about their business and end up being hit on by potential investors or something mm-hmm. was pretty gross and uh, and it went on to talk about how that's led to you know groups like you know or women focused angel groups uh, you know which there are a variety of now. Um, talk about the challenges of raising money as you know as a woman entrepreneur and where to go and what to expect because there's women there's there's groups out there devoted to. Uh, uh, funding women-led businesses, and we should talk about those. But also, you're, you know, as you said yourself, the majority of the people still involved in the process are male. So at some point, you're going to have to deal with them. Um, you know, I pretend I'm a, I'm a young female entrepreneur with a great idea. Uh, what do I do? Where do I go? You know, how do I improve my odds? Yeah. So the first thing is find your tribe if you haven't already, right? Vivek Wadwa, I remember hearing him talk years ago. And Vivek Wadwa, if, you, if, if folks don't know who he is, um, he's a, a guy from India who came to the Silicon Valley. He's a um, highly, very academic, PhD, um, highly accomplished um, uh, startup founder, as well as, as academic. And he talked about how when he first came to the, the Silicon Valley back in the 90s, nobody would take a meeting with him. And um, then he found other folks, other guys from India, and they were having the same challenge. And they thought, forget this, let's help each other, right? They found their tribe. And so they would do things like, you know, show their demos to each other and talk through their pitch decks and all that. And they became each other's support system. And then they did what some women have done. And certainly some women I've talked to have done is they hired the white guy to go out and do the pitches and, and close the deal. And so, right. And then ultimately, you know, they become, you know, they they make it rich, they end up becoming investors. And, you know, there we go. Um, And you go to Silicon Valley now, and the demographics are very different than when I used to go to the Silicon Valley years and years ago. And so we see that. So the first thing for women is there is power, power in volume. 
Um, so, so absolutely finding other founders who are like you, and you can do that in a, a few different ways. You can look at those accelerators around you who are wanting to help you. And there are quite a few who are wanting to help you, um, and, and go there, right. And, and test your pitch and doing those things, right. So there are the Astias, um, certainly, um, in, in other accelerators as well. And, um, and then from there, really working on things like who do you know and who knows you? So what's the market that you're going into? What's the problem you're solving? Who cares about that problem that you're solving? Um, and then getting an understanding of who else cares about that, who are the players there and working your way to who those folks are, right? Looking at your LinkedIn, seeing where you have common connections, um, all of those kinds of things that, that you would ask any startup founder to be able to do. And um, while I'm talking to you, I'm actually looking for a list of um, different female organizations that I can send to you because I, I did the list like a day or so ago and now I can't find it. Um, and then um, and then from there, in terms of the, the, the sexual discrimination, the sexual harassment, um, it, it happens and it's disgusting. And guess what? There are women with money who want to fund you, who aren't going to cross a line with you. And what we have seen lots and lots of folks do, and, and you know, certainly what you brought up, is women are saying, you don't get to be part of my business anymore. I'm not going to make any money for you. I'm not going to um, help you. I'm now going to go be invested in by somebody who wants to invest in me. So go and find those, you know, Cindy Padnos from Illuminate, um, Starvest um, in Illuminate's out in Silicon Valley, Starvest over in New York, right? Adam Quinton, um, can't remember his organization, Ilya, um, Nair, all of these different folks who are out there, very public, go find them. Go see who wants to invest in, in female-founded businesses. Yeah, and I would, as I said a minute ago, check out the Supex website and look at some of the sponsors. I mean, Springboard, yeah. Springboard Enterprises, Astia, 37 Angels, Golden Seeds, The Jump Fund. I know Marsha Daywood, who's at The Jump Fund, and also Blue Tree at Allied Angels and Golden Seeds, and she's on the board of the Angel Capital Association. She just started a new group two. I think it's called New Frontier. I could be wrong. I, and I apologize if Marsha's listening. I forgot the name of the organization. But um, if you do your research, these these aren't the needle in the haystack that they used to be. I mean, they're popping up in most major cities now for the reasons that, you know, this you know article said, you know, of, of some of the awful experiences and also just for the need to uh, have better harmony and, uh, you know, connection to and, and support a support network. So they are out there now and they weren't before. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so many. And what I love is that we also have this thing. And, and I love this term. It was coined by my friend Pamela Reichman, who wrote the book Stiletto Network and um, in a few years ago. And so the book talks about how these power circles of women and I'm part of one. I'm part of this tribe um, of women here in Boston. And and we essentially just sit around. It's a bunch of women who've achieved a bunch of stuff. And some of us are entrepreneurs. Some of us are corporate execs. Some of us are on the money side, right? So we're all just, we, we all come from, from different places and, and, and have been very, very fortunate. And we truly will look around and go, who can we help and how can we help them? 
how cool is that? And so there are these stiletto networks around us who are doing that. And my gosh, if you're very, very new and you're you're very, very green, you're just starting out, um, look at, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of lean-in, um, but look at the different lean-in circles that are around you. Look at um, Elevate that Sally Krawcheck has out, right, for the earlier um, kind of more emerging um, talent kind of folks. There's There's someone, to your point, there is an organization that can help you. And those organizations tend to be based on on generation, they tend to be based on industry, um, they tend to be based on geography, they tend to be based on what stage your business is in. So there are so many different um, different ones out there. Yeah, and the enthusiasm for it is uh, profound and impressive. Uh, you know, um, look, you know, the guy, there's tons of organizations or networks that, you know, are there, but it's definitely, I, I it's different in a in an interesting sort of way the the desire to really want to help and give back and i see so many of these organizations start up started by amazing women to help other amazing women it's pretty cool to see and if you do your research like patty said you can i mean you can even simply just do some google searches you'd be surprised how much stuff pops up now there's some really cool, cool stuff going on Patty, I, can I just say, sorry, can I just course. say something? I, I, yeah. So I, I do want to go back to all the news lately, right? And it, and it started, I'm writing an article for Fortune right now on this. Um, it started it started with, uh, you know, a few weeks ago with Uber, right? And, but it didn't. First of all, this is not a Silicon Valley pro- pro- problem. This is a, a pr- problem pretty much everywhere. Um, and it didn't start with Uber, right? We had Ellen Powell last year, which all of us were watching. Was that last year or the year before? Time's I think blind. it was a couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah, okay. So all, I think you're right. So all of us were watching that, right? The, the Those of us in the know and going, oh my God. And then of course, you know, it went south and that really stunk. But what we found out from that was that there were practices that sexual discrimination is part of a far larger problem, right? You said it, 2% of funding. That means that 98% of venture money, of external money meant to fuel innovation goes to male-founded businesses. That's ridiculous. So it's part of a far broader problem. And what we found out from that that case that that Ellen um, went through was things like Kleiner Perkins had a rule, as did so many others apparently, where women who were, you know, money, right, they were investors, were only allowed to sit on a certain number of board seats from their portfolio, whereas men were unlimited, where women were only invited, right? So it's a far broader problem. So if I'm a woman and I see all of those things, just know we get that. That's why, not because we we don't want inappropriate, you know, uncomfortable, gross behavior from a, a sexual harassment perspective, but more than that, we want your great idea to get funded and we want to help you. And that's really where this comes in. Uh, Rob Delman, who's the head of deal flow for Golden Seeds, is a friend of mine, and uh, you know, and he's a guy's guy and and a, and a hardcore investor. But and you know, he 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 he's involved with the organization for a lot of reasons. But I mean, even if you look at it from purely economic reason, he can rattle off statistics that are very compelling about just you know having women founders, more women involved in the the leadership team. Uh, research proves equates to better portfolio returns and better, I mean, just better investment returns. If for no other, for no other reason than just an economic reason, 
the numbers are there. You know, Dean, the, the, we one of our judges for our business plan competition, who I think you dealt with last year, Patty, was Dean Hatton of Los Ellis Venture mm-hmm. Capital in Fort Lauderdale. You know, this year uh, we had a, essentially a tie uh, going into the the decision making process to hand out the awards at SUPEX. And uh, it was the nod was given to a, uh, a women led business, not to do it for its own sake. So people say, oh, we helped women. But he said, no, actually, our investment criteria based on the research shows that, you know, women led businesses do better. And we actually give a, uh, a certain number of points in our scoring yep. of uh, of uh, of decks. Uh, the fact that they do have uh, a diverse founder level uh, team, and and that was a critical factor in determining you know one of the the winners. Which by the way, that the, the second place finisher at Supex this year was Appleonix, yeah. which is one of your WinLab companies, yeah. by the way, here in Miami. So yeah, just, yeah. Uh, so you should be we were proud. Very- yeah, we're very excited. So, so that that is super critical and super important. I, I do have to say, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Um, if I see one more research piece of research justifying why I should be in a boardroom or why I could possibly be investable, I will poke myself in the eyeballs with a dull pencil. I mean, enough with this whole justifying our existence and in that. But it goes back to we still, for some reason, need a business case that says having women in your boardroom means better investment decisions from an acquisition perspective, for example, or better financial returns. Having women in your portfolio as an investor means I'm probably going to get better returns. You know, the the thing that's super clear when it comes to external investment is they are not in the investment business. They're in the make money business. If you want to make money, and everything is telling you that you should have diversity in your portfolio and diversity within the founding teams, then you probably should do it and move the heck on. What are you going to lose? And by the way, I found that list, Bob, um, of, um, of funding options for, for women that I um, worked and um, compiled. Share it, um, with, share it with me, and I'll include it in the newsletter when we put your article in the oh. newsletter. I can also tweet it out, too. Okay, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'll do. There's there's a mix of both um, uh, VC angels um, as well as the grant side. Um, so um, absolutely hoping that the the folks listening in will will take a look and take advantage. That's great. Thing, yeah, women tend to self select out of out of going for money for multiple reasons. Um, one, because they're told they're going to be told no anyway, um, which you know is ridiculous. Um, yeah but you're going to find somebody who says yes. Um, and that grit's really important. And, and we absolutely have that as, as, as founders. The other side is women who have already gone down the road and have run a business um, where their board was made up of their VCs and they will never do it again because it was such a bad experience. <laughs> and so, well, that, that experience is not limited to women. <laughs> that's right. That's- <laughs> there are a lot of people who, once they've exited say that's it i'm just doing this friends and family from now on i'm never doing that again exactly so patty it's not surprising uh given that you're a phd but and you've dropped a lot of references to some incredible books so you know you've obviously do a lot of research and you're incredibly well read but uh more interestingly uh you're actually coming out with a book here pretty soon right 
I sure am. And thanks for letting me talk about that. Um, so this this book is the anti-lean-in. Um, and, uh, you know, so many women I know, and I, I certainly say this myself, um, if I leaned in anymore, my face would hit the ground. And and I the, the challenge that I have, and one of the things I didn't talk about before, and we're certainly seeing the acknowledgement of this now, when it comes to the topic of women or other, any other represented population, whether we're talking about in business, um, large business, or we're talking about in startups, there's this desire to have that underrepresented population become more like white men. And I am so sorry if it sounds like I'm picking on white men. I'm not. It's the system that's the problem, not not the white men that are the problem. I'm a 53-year-old white male. I'm used to yeah. it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you. It's not. It's the system, right? And so, and so, but once you're aware of it, then we change it, right? So the whole thing is, Bob, you, we don't need to fix you. You're fine. Thank you very much, right? And so, <laughs> yeah. much, well, right? So, maybe you don't know me as well as you think you do, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm on your show. I'm going to be nice. <laughs> and so, and, and neither do I, and neither do these other incredible women, right? I mean, you and I have met some amazing startup founders in our lifetime. Some folks who, who are incredible founders, some folks who have incredible ideas, but probably don't belong in the founder route, right? It takes a very special few um, to fit there, regardless of their men or their women. And so what I didn't want to do is write a book to say, hey, you need to change because you're not good enough, because that's just ridiculous. So this book, it's called Disruptors. It's coming out in 20, um, January 2018. Um, and it is Every chapter is kind of this unwritten rule um, of, of business. And then in it, we share, I share very much in my own voice. So it's not a, a boring business book, but there is absolutely research. In other words, to give you the context of the system, right? Here's really what's going on. And then to share stories and examples of these incredible women I've met who have achieved success the way they've defined it and on their own terms by knowing the system and doing it their way. And sometimes they were able to change the system and move it along. And in other ways, they were able just to get around and then ending with some very practical. And here's what you can do. I'm really, really excited about it. We're in crunch time right now um, and, and hitting those production, um, those production deadlines at the same time. So this is Entrepreneur Press and they are the, the book publishing arm of Entrepreneur Magazine, which, as you know, is a fantastic publication. And now I think it's my favorite. Um, and. <laughs> And so to build up momentum, um, I, as you know, I write a lot. Um, and so I've started a, a weekly column with Entrepreneur. And um, my first um, article went out last week and it was about, I love the movie Wonder Woman. I believe it's the best movie ever made and that we all should watch it every day. And so, um, you know, a little, little bit of bias there. But anyway, so as I as I had said in the, the video, every blog that I do is accompanied by a video. And as I said in the video, I saw it once and then I went back a second time and brought a notebook because there were so many traits that Wonder Woman had that reminded me of all the incredible women I have worked with and met and studied throughout the years who are female disruptors. And they tended to be entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. And, and so I listed out the 20 traits and then each article 
in the 20 weeks following will be about those traits, breaking down what it is. So what's the research? What are a few examples? Um, and then, you know, advice from, from those examples. And so I, I hope folks check it out as, as we build um, momentum toward, toward that book. And that means that I will have it at the expo. Well, and well, we, we'll have you on again uh, before about the time your book comes out so we can help. Because I, I want to I'd like to read it and then uh, ask you some questions and uh, have you be, a, you know, have the book be a subject of another interview in depth. That would be awesome. Awesome. I would love that. Patty, you have, as predicted, been a, an amazing guest. This is the first time I've ever done this where uh, I think if I count my minutes correctly, we've been doing this for like almost uh, an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. So uh, and we we could probably stay on for another hour and 40 minutes if we wanted to. But you've been an amazing guest and I appreciate you taking the time out of curiosity. How do people so if um if I'm a larger corporation and I want some uh, change management, cultural change, uh, transformation uh, consulting, how do I get in touch with you for that purpose? Right. So there are a few different things that, that we do. There's absolutely the consulting, the workshopping, there's the the strategic coaching, transformational leadership coaching, and then there's keynote um, speaking. And the best way to get in touch is um, by contacting Heather Bogini at Heather at pattyfletcher.com. So it's P-A-T-T-I Fletcher.com. Go to our website at drpattyfletcher.com. So it's D-R, not spelled out, um, pattyfletcher.com. And then um, you can always connect with me on Twitter at, at @pkfletcher, and I will absolutely respond. Very easy to get a hold of. <laughs> You've been fantastic as always. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, and we'll get you back on when your book comes out, and we're happy to help you uh, tell the rest of the country all about it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic and time has flown. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great evening.